Here we are at the 2022 CBA Banquet. We are back with another episode of the CBA's ABCs of Bow Hunting, and I have one of the most special guests we've had on to date. Uh, now, former chairman of the CBA, Gerald Rossman. Gerald, how are you today? Doing great. I'm glad you uh, said yes to this. I've been wanting to get you on ever since over a year ago where we started talking about doing the podcast. And one, I'm really glad that you guys uh, were open to the idea of it. And man, it's cool to see this thing a year later grows a little bit and uh, get some new content uh, on wax, as they say. Well, it's great to get the word out about bow hunting and the CBA and get youth involved. Yeah, uh, I know that's a big goal for you and a big goal for a lot of guys in the organization is you put in so much work over the years, and without this sounding negative, a lot of the guys in the room tonight are older, you know, and so I like the idea of doing what we can to modernize our message, get a unified front going forward to present issues to the CPW, which has been very prevalent lately with Hunter's Orange and uh, season dates and uh, the ban on or attempt on banning mountain lion hunting. It's really cool to see all these various organizations, including the Colorado Bowhunters Association, come together and really be unified on uh, these fronts. So big thanks to you, uh, Wes Mendez, with the legislative front. I think you guys are doing great here, and I kind of wanted to get the inside scoop on how you've seen the organization grow, as well as your personal history, some of your hunting history. Maybe I could snag a few stories from you. How does that sound? That sounds great. So... If you could give us maybe an overview of you, where you grew up, how you entered the world of hunting, um, that would be awesome. Okay, I grew up uh, north of Greeley in a small town called Alt. Uh-huh. Grew up on a farm north of town, Alt native. Mother was an Alt native. Grandmother was, an, was a native from wow. Colorado. So family goes way back. Great-grandfather Rasmussen had uh, two and a half sections out on Pawnee grassland that they lost in the Depression. Yeah, it was one of the early ones that was taken that kind of helped start Bonnie Grassland. So, yeah, we got a lot of history in that area. Taken by the state government? Well, yeah, wherever, whoever the money was owed to, and I would imagine it was a federal loan. Interesting. So that's my guess. I don't have all the details. Yeah. But but I uh, grew up on the farm. Uh, Mom and dad and my grandfather Fletcher hunted rifle. So when I was nine months old, I was in deer camp on the western slope. No way. What year is that? That would have been the fall of 1951. Wow. How interesting. I can just only imagine how different the landscape was at that time. I mean, the population density of Colorado, as well as just the um, hunting population. You're really coming out of the 1800s, the gold rush, and these mountain men that were trapping and, and being fur bearers. And so the, the legacies of those guys, I'm sure, were in your grandparents and your parents. And yeah. Really cool. So 1951. Uh, I don't know if you have memories from nine months old, but <laughs> I, I'm curious as to... Well, I don't believe I have memories from nine months, but I know I was there sometime after that. And yeah. we stayed in a tent. Wow. We didn't have campers, but I remember... One time when they scooped the snow from one tent to another tent, you know, and it was half my body height at that time. So it was, the snow was kind of deep and, you know, we all stayed in the tent. It's fascinating because when you tell people nowadays you're going winter camping, they kind of look at you a little cross-eyed and say, what are you doing? And you have all this modern technology, goose down, synthetic down, uh, these ultralight camp stoves. But back then it must have been canvas tents. And canvas tents and uh, making a fire. Well, I th- they think they had a propane propane stove. Really? Yeah. Very I believe cool. so. Or a Coleman, one or the other. However, I'm sure the pack weights were much higher. Uh, did you guys do all this on foot? Were you guys on horseback? or No, they just pulled into a little camping area and set the tents up there so we didn't have to carry stuff too far. That's but, great. But, yeah, I grew up, grew up hunting with them, and I bought my first bow. It's uh, Ben Pearson Cock Robin. Don't know the poundage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, probably when I was around eight years old. Okay. Still have it. Really? Yeah. And so is that? It's a little bit of a recurve. Yeah. Not not too much of a hook on the end of the tips, but a little bit. Did you get into that because your family members were using bows, or what interested you? I, I just seen it in the Montgomery Ward catalog, and oh, we wow. got it bought. 
And I tried uh, hunting with it once, uh, shot at a jackrabbit, but missed him. They're kind of fast, so. <laughs> and then uh, about uh, 1973, I was dating my wife, Ann, before we got married, and I had her pick me up a bear, Kodiak, Hunter, Recurve, still have it, hunted some with it. Never did successfully take anything with it, but oh, yeah, it's still very usable. It looks almost new. So, so I'm curious if you have any insight on this. Uh, being that Colorado is so dry, uh, is there any sort of maintenance to these long bows and recurve bows in terms of making sure that they still have that flex to them and aren't going to just become brittle over time? You know, to be honest, uh, I don't know of any maintenance on those. Yeah. You know, I got mine all stored in a closet in the basement. Yeah. You know, and solid construction. They're like. yeah, they're built very well. That's really interesting because I've just noticed that about this climate in general is uh, like stuff like uh, my snowboarding gloves are made of leather, and I have to condition them a little bit more frequently. Right. They'll dry out, and the, the hides will get a little uh, crackly if you don't maintain it. So I exactly. Didn't know that transferred over to wood, or maybe this is a question for South Cox. Yeah. Right. He would know that very well. Very interesting. Um, and so I guess here's a question is when did you take your first animal with a bow? Do you remember that? That was 1982. Wow. So you're, I, here, let me backtrack. Were you successful with a rifle prior to that? Yes. Okay. Because I was going to say it's a long time. Yeah, I'd taken back. a couple cow elk and a spike bull. And, and through that time, I did hunt pronghorn once with a rifle and didn't use the scope. I'd archery hunted enough and yeah, yeah. took him with open sights at about 120 yards. Really took the big buck out of the bunch and snuck up on him, and they stood up, and I picked out the big one in one shot, and it was over, and I said, not hunting with a rifle anymore. He, he didn't have a chance. Interesting, and that's the thing that I've been investigating since I, my, I've entered hunting. I've been hunting for about five years now, and the idea of fair chase and how it's almost self-defined uh, there are ethics that I think we can all agree upon, and then there's those self-imposed ethics, and it sounds like that was a point for you, where you made a decision where it's just like, I'm happy to have the meat, however, I need this, I need this to feel a little more fulfilling, a little more earned. Yes. Yeah. I like the challenge. Uh, when I hunt elk, I've taken uh, one 4 by 5 bull. I took that bull in 88, wow. 30 yards out of a tree stand. Hard, hard tracking. I hit him really good, but uh, caught the liver some, and he bled mainly inside. So tracking him was a big challenge. Yeah. And he went uphill. Man. And when we got finally got to him after going through sagebrush and different things, looking at little fingernail-sized pieces of blood, and yep. we got up on top. We had the flashlights out. It was pitch dark. Oh man, it must be. It's it's such an interesting uh, dynamic between. The moment you pull the trigger and the understanding that you've connected and that moment of elation of I did it and then that moment of where the heck is this thing? It took a while to find the trail, but yeah. we didn't give up. We just kept going and that's what people need to do. Don't give up. Just keep focused and keep going. I'm 100% with you there. I've noticed it with some YouTube videos of guys who say, well, I shot at a bull earlier this week and we couldn't find him, so I shot a second bull. It's just that doesn't sit right with me. I, my, my ethics aren't everybody's ethics, but I just do, do notice that. Like I always learned in Hunter's Ed when I took it a few years ago, uh, if you draw blood, that should probably be your tag. Now, I'm not going to tell anybody how to hunt or what to hunt, but that's just my own personal uh, thoughts on the things. If, if I hit you with right. an arrow, you're my animal, whether I can find you or I can't. Yeah. And I notice here at the CBA, there's a, a stand with the guys who have the blood tracking dogs. So there's always an option. Right. You can always get some right. stuff out there. Yep. I, uh, I'm very curious. You don't have to give away all your secrets. However, the hunting out of a tree stand. I'm curious how you knew where the elk would be. Were you sitting on a wallow? Was it a travel corridor? I've hunted this one uh, area northwest of uh, Red Feather yeah. uh, since 1964. Get a bit of a... And, and this, this little bowl that's in there, some other people have found it, and yeah. it's been a hot spot. It's not quite as good because of all the beetle kill pine and trees falling down, but... It's always been a great spot. There's a little spring back in there. 
it really doesn't drain much in that close area and I had fairly easy access to get in there. Now it's a little tougher because the little road is all filled up. Well, it's filled up with dead trees falling over. And uh, Forest Service put a sign up, no vehicles. So so I have to walk in from the bottom to get in there. But where I hung my tree stand and all the good trees around that are all dead. Interesting. So there's really not a good tree to put a tree stand there right now. Yeah. I, uh, last year, so I've been hunting, uh, the same spot on opening day for two years now, and it's a popular spot. Uh, there's a lot of guys back there, but they don't necessarily want to leave the trails. They don't necessarily want to leave the roads. And, uh, the second night of the season last year, I heard some ATVs pulling in at night and I saw the last one leave with a bull elk on it. And so I said, if there's something back there I should go check out. So I just went exploring, bushwhacking through the woods. And I found this wallow, and I found two tree stands, one made out of wood and another one made out of aluminum. And the aluminum one looked like it had been there for five, six, ten years. But that wood one, I was like, someone's been hunting a bull off of this wallow for decades. Yeah. Yeah, there's a few of those hanging around, and people people leave them. We've found stands that have been left for a long time, and the, the chain or the cable's grown into the tree. and. Right. Yeah. Too risky because you want to be safe. When you go up, you know, when you're setting it up, you should use a harness safety strap. And and when you come down, you should use pretty much the same thing if you really want to be safe. Yeah. Uh, One thing that's been interesting I haven't tried yet, but I'm curious, uh, is the saddle hunting. Have you seen this come online? Um, These guys are now not exactly hunting out of a tree stand, but it's a harness that they uh, sit in. I've seen some of those. They'll climb up the tree and they'll have a tiny little platform. I just couldn't imagine doing it for 10 hours or 12 hours, but maybe it's more comfortable than than I know. Something to look into. Um, So I want to keep hearing about your hunting history, but I'm curious at what point in... uh, So CBA has been around since 1969. And at what point did you find the CBA? Well, I believe it was I was at Gart Brothers in Fort Collins looking at uh, some over and under shotguns. Uh-huh. And they had a little kiosk there that had a Colorado Bowhunters membership form in. And I picked that up. And I'm guessing that it was late 70s, early 80s that I went ahead and joined. And I was just a regular member. And I'd sometimes over the years my membership would run out and I wouldn't renew right away. It'd be my six months or so. And I think it was, I got it written down here somewhere. See if I can find it. Okay. I joined as a life member February 28th of 93. There you go. That's probably a good deal. And I was inducted into the Colorado Bowhunters Hall of Fame. In 2005. Wow. And I got the service award in 2018. Man. So I've been involved over over 20 years. I'm yeah. guessing 24, 25 years maybe total. That is awesome. And when I uh, had reached out to you guys a bit over a little over a year ago, you were the chairman of the board. I don't want to say reluctantly, but maybe uh, someone strong-darmed you into, into taking over. And I think it probably came from a love of the Bowhunters Association and not wanting to see it dwindle, not Right. Well, it was sad to have our chairman pass away. And, you know, I kind of planned on getting off the last two or three years anyway. Yeah. But I do not want to see this organization fail. Yeah. And Craig said he would do the vice chair of operations if I'd done the chairman. And I thought, we better take care of this and keep it moving. And because we just started down a path with upgrading the magazine with Matt Jackson. Sure. And I wanted to see these good things happen. And everything fell in place where we had good people on the board. I always tell people I let the board members talk too long at meetings and we run too long. But it it helped us so much to come up with great ideas. And it wasn't just because of me that we made all these great tasks happen. It was because it was good teamwork with all of us involved. I think it takes a real leader to recognize when it's not their show. You don't want to be the star of this. You just want to facilitate it. 
Right. I just wanted to help out, and that's what I tell people. I'm just here to help. I applaud you for that because since I've joined, it really seemed to go from this, um, I don't want to say dwindling, but kind of antiquated type of organization uh, where, you know, post-World War II, <coughs> hunting was the most popular thing going. It didn't need to be advocated for. And nowadays, with uh, since, you know, the 1950s, we probably have another 150 million people in this country. We've lost some, you know, state parks, we've lost some national forests, and there's a lot of development going on. However, a lot of people in the world want to blame hunters versus the suburban sprawl for the threat to our wildlife and the threat to our ecosystems. So I, I really appreciate that you and Craig stepped into the role. We're going to do an interview here with Craig today as well, so I'm curious to hear his side of the story. Well, people need to understand that hunters, through their funding, help manage big game. If there's not enough to hunt, we don't want to hunt. We want to take care of that resource out there. We want to be able to hunt it. We want people to be able to see it and enjoy it. Yeah. And it's interesting to be so short-sighted about the downstream repercussions of these actions that come from a place of passion. That's a little bit of my goal in being in this space, having this podcast, is it's really easy for hunters to say, screw vegans, screw, screw vegetarians, or anti-hunters, or what have you. And I think they and us have a very similar passion for these animals. Right. Our understanding of the uh, ecosystem dynamics and how it works and how you need to be involved and keep your thumb to the pulse um, is very different. It's hard to not feel egotistical or arrogant saying, I know this stuff and you don't know this stuff. But that's the finesse, having a polite conversation uh, and being able to bring people on. I'm a yoga teacher, and so I have a lot of people who are not uh, excited about hunting. However, when I tell them about the financing, about the North American model of wildlife conservation, right. about how hard I work on this outside of the one or two weeks a year I actually get to do it, it starts to bring them around a little bit and say, oh, I'm, I'm judging you in a way that's not fair. That's uh, bringing up a saying that I've had over the years. Yeah. If you don't ask, you don't know. And those people aren't asking, mm-hmm. and they don't know. Yeah. If they knew, they'd understand what we are doing. And I wanted to go back to my elk to make people understand how I pick and choose and do what I do because I took that four by five bull. I didn't get it mounted. We were able to drag it down the steep slope where it was at and some Nebraska hunters had a camp there and they helped load it in my buddy's pickup. And they said, you're going to get that mounted. I said, no, I'm going to hunt a big one. So I've been hunting big ones since then. And I have passed Six small fours and fives. I've tried to take two fair fives the last four or five years, and they've done the same as the two 300-class bulls did. I get half draw with my bow at 20 yards, and they turn, and I don't have a good shot, so I don't take the shot. So I pick and choose. I don't have to kill everything, and I don't need a need 100 animals hanging on the wall. But when I try to put one there, I want to try to make it a good one. And if you hunt the big ones, they're the smart ones. So the chance of you killing something goes down. So I'm actually leaving the little ones to grow up to get to be big ones. I like that ethic, and it also really tests your level, your hunting prowess, of your your understanding of, of wildlife biology as well as the location, as well as yourself, your wind, your scent, what's going on. Um, and honestly... So, like, having meat in the freezer is amazing, and, and putting a big animal on the ground is amazing. However, the encounter is, I think, the main reason why we're there. 
is, is being within 30, 50, 20 yards. Of the encounter is the challenge. And the one bull that I passed come into the same water hole that I killed my bull on. And this happened oh, probably six or eight years ago. I seen a spike coming in, and he went up above a little ways from me, uphill, 50 yards. And here comes a branch antlered bull. And I kind of looked, and I said, well, he's small. I'm looking for the big one back there. Well, there was no big one. So this small one got closer. Well, something had happened to one of his antlers because it was not there. It was a one-antlered four-point. I didn't really notice, notice, but there wasn't much of it there at all. So he come right into the water hole right beneath me. He couldn't have been more than three yards out from the tree. So I had him that close, and he rolled in the mud, and then I knew I didn't want him. <laughs> A muddy, wet bull is nothing to mess with. <laughs> so I just let him go. And one other year at this same place, hanging from a different tree, and we'd missed two bulls from the ground that year, my buddy and I, with recurves. Yeah. So I'm up this tree, and a cow and a little younger calf, and two yearlings come in. Well, I couldn't lean around the tree to shoot at the yearlings. Right. The cow was there. The calf still barely had where you could see spots. And I think in a week later, I think rifle season opened. Sure. And I, I said to myself, I've missed those two bulls. Those were my chances. Yeah. And I'm not doing this with that little. Yeah. Let them go. Know that you enjoyed it because some of this stuff you enjoy and you don't have to do anything. I like that. There's a guy named Doug Duran who often goes on the Meat Eater podcast, and he has a ranch in Wisconsin. And... Um, they have a saying on the ranch, better buck next year. And so just that idea uh, of you can let it grow. You can come back and, you know, who knows what other hunters are doing, but that will make a better animal next year. And even with a cow-calf situation, is let's, let's let these things survive. You know, maybe that calf would make it through the winter and make it through the season, but with its mom there, you know it's got a better chance. Right. Yeah. And white-tailed deer. I hunted out at Julesburg on the river, mm-hmm. and... The one year I had this nice buck come in, and I'd cut a limb off on the tree to hang my pack on, cut it short. So this deer come in, and I looked at him, and I judged him at about 135, which would make Pope and Young. Drew back on him, leaned out to miss that limb, got on him, had him at 15 to 20 yards, gave a little grunt. He stopped. I shot the bottom limb of my bow, touched that limb on that tree, and it set that arrow one body length behind him, never touched him. And it was right kill zone height. It just moved it that much, never got him. The next year from the same tree, there was a little three-point come in. And I thought, well, that's really not what I want, but I haven't shot a whitetail. Had him at about 15 yards, gave a grunt, shot, dead on the money. He run 30 yards, tried to jump the fence, went upside down, and never moved. Dead that quick. So that was a great, great kill shot. It's, it's nice to feel when you can execute it on a way that you were thinking about, right? We don't want to wound animals. We don't want to track them for days and days or hours and hours, miles and miles. Uh, and when you get to see it lay down in front of you, when you get that, you shoot it, you know you connected, and you see it dead. And on it's the right there. Top. Yeah. I've had that happen with <clears throat> two whitetails back in New York. And the first, uh, the first one... Um, it went about 100 yards away, but I can see it through the woods, and I saw it laid down. It's just nice to know it's there. You don't have to go immediately disturb the woods. But the second one, I hit it high lung and hit it in the spine, and it dropped in place. Kicked two, three times, 35 seconds, it was done. And you just breathe this sigh of relief that I am not a menace out here. I'm here with my ethics. I've trained to shoot. And sure, can my shot placement be better? It can almost always be better. Exactly. And if you know, if you hit one and they're in pain and you can get to them, you put them down. And I've done that on a pronghorn once. Had a bad hit, dropped him in the water hole, got him back in the spine off of a windmill platform and grabbed another arrow and done. I have. have 1995 
went northwest of Alton Pierce. Yeah. Pope and Young, 154 and four eighths. No. From the ground. Really? Spot and stalk? How did you? Uh, let's see. Should I tell this story? <laughs> I had a, and I'd hunted out there for many years and I'd missed two or three nice bucks that was scored 170. But, uh, my buddy, a wheat farmer, called and says, you want to hunt a deer? We've got a deer out here that's kind of limping. Well, they were in rut. Yeah. So I don't know if he'd been in a fight or if he'd got caught in a barbed wire fence. And, but got out there, tried to get on him in some tall sagebrush. Couldn't quite get on him because he could still outrun you. You know, just couldn't get on him. And he run over in a wheat field and we drove over there. And I got on the ground and chased around, and I think I chased him enough that he decided, hey, this guy's not gaining on me. And I had him at about 25 yards, yeah. basically an open ground in a little little gully. Mm-hmm. And he turned and looked at me, and I remember that same look on the Jersey Bulls we had in our corral. Yeah. And remember, this deer's in rut. Right. And I seen that look, and I knocked an arrow and stuck him. Wow. And he didn't go... 20 yards the arrow went through him and stuck in the dirt on the other side See, that's a very interesting so i basically chased down this deer yeah. <laughs> so you remind last year i uh was hunting turkey for the first time and i uh hunting all day i was doing a little bit of scouting i saw some young bull bull elk i was very excited and i was like okay this is a good day no turkey that's all right i get my car to leave and there's two toms and a hen uh, uh, strutting right across the road and then your ethics comes into play well I don't want to park on this guy's driveway I don't want to just pull off and shoot this thing standing in the middle of the road Right. I had my mountain bike with me so I go back on <clears throat> the car jump on the bike and uh, I ride about a mile back to where they were I couldn't see them but I could hear them so I jump off into a ditch on public land and I start calling and they're responding they're responding and they're so preoccupied like you said with this rut and mule deer so preoccupied with breeding that they're not seeing me 30, 40 yards off. And I'm right. it up this hill and just I move and they move, but they're not necessarily scared of me. And you can eventually close the distance. Right. And for me, what ended up happening is I got to the public-private boundary and I go, ah, man, I lost him. And I look to my left and he's on my side of the fence with his head through the fence trying to get through the other side. Oh, I got to take this shot. Yeah. So I shot him. And I thought I hit him real good. Uh, he flew down about, you know, as turkeys do, uh, like 20, 30 yards downhill. And I'm tracking him and I'm tracking him. And then my phone dies. And I was like, I don't want to, like, not be able to place pin drops on my GPS. So I backed out, went to get my uh, battery pack, and then plugged my phone back in. And I go back to where I started tracking him. And he had enough light. I found my arrow, and I found a tree that was down on a fence. And so he had enough life to pop up over that fence onto the private, out of my life. I could never recover him. Oh, shoot. And I was so heartbroken. But at that same time, that feeling of you're chasing him, you're hearing him, you're seeing him. And it just reminded me of the mule deer story where it's hunting. It's exciting hunting. Just because you didn't see him up in a cliff at 11,000 feet doesn't yeah. mean you didn't earn him. You know? Yeah. I had a mule deer once... Uh out on Pawnee, on Pawnee grassland, down in a ravine, and the motorcycles guys go out there and ride their bikes, you know. But this was late in the season, and the wind was blowing quite a bit. So I'm walking these ravines, looking down in. Well, here's this nice record book mule deer right over the bank. I'm thinking, how can I stand up and get a shot at him? And I can't. I need to get him to stand up. I threw some rocks down in there. He wouldn't get up. He wouldn't get up. So I, I moved up. Well, by the time I got to where I maybe could get a shot, he jumped up and run. Yeah. No shot. Oh, you know, and I had him 10 yards. <laughs> so, you know, people need to understand you're not going to get them all. Yeah. All the stocks aren't going to work. You know, I hunt uh, I hunted pronghorn a lot from windmill platforms. I've been hunting recently from uh, pop-up lines. Yep. Haven't taken one from a pop-up line. I did pass one here a couple of years ago that my uh, grandson didn't get a shot at. Uh, he had does come in before we could shoot does and had them at 15 yards. And then when uh, does didn't come in, that was later, 
this buck come in while he was behind the, the corner posts and the cross wire braces. And I told my grandson, I said, it's no shot. Yeah. Well, later I was in the blind myself and that buck come by at 12 yards. And I like, no, he was about a 12 inch buck. He yeah, was yeah. decent, yeah. but I'm like, no, that, that was my grandson's buck. I am not <laughs> shooting him. <laughs> I was actually waiting for a bigger one that I'd seen, but he never showed up. But anyway, let's go back to my first kill with a bow. I'd hunted six, seven, eight years, and I had people where I worked, and one guy said, yeah, you'll never kill a pronghorn with a bow. You're you're not that good. Well, I put this windmill platform up in 79, 16 feet up, platform on the north, platform on the south over the tank. I'd go in at 5 in the morning in the dark and get on there and stay all day. So that... That day, I think that was August 21st of uh, 82. I went up, I hunted from the ground in the morning. I missed a shot from the ground that morning on a little hill. Didn't get him. Different buck. I thought, well, you know, I said my prayers this morning for God to go with me and help me on this hunt. So now I'm going to go back and get on the windmill. I said all day. So just before dark, here comes this buck in from the north and I get ready and he comes in right beneath me so I'm facing the windmill and I lean over shoot down he's ready to drink in the tank and when you lean over like that you know and that's I've been using fingers no no peep just fingers and pins and I shoot I'm missing by a foot stick the arrow in the dirt right beside him so he runs around the windmill the backside around so I knock another arrow because I know he's going to stop out here. And I turn around and I draw back just about the time he's ready to stop. And he stops and I said, okay, that's 40 yards. And I let her fly. And I caught him low in the chest, broadside. He ran 500 yards. And I waited a half an hour, gathered my stuff, got off the windmill, walked. He jumped up on me four times, but I got him. Wow. I got him. When I when I gutted him out, I was using a four-bladed Savora, uh-huh. and I had to pry the bottom blade out of the breastbone. Really? The top blade cut the bottom of his heart. Wow. I come within an inch of not getting him. Wow. And my thought was, he wasn't 40 yards. He was 45 or just a little over. You know, because I, I wasn't using any range finder or anything. It was just, that's 40, let her fly. But, you know, you got to follow through and then do your thing. You can't can't just, well, I didn't get him. We'll go for another one. No. That's the message I'm getting from you is persistence. I mean, I don't know if the listeners are picking up on this, but you're saying stuff about, I set this up in 79, back in, in 82, three years later, it paid off for me, you know? That's one thing I'm recognizing about moving out here in New York. I've been lucky, besides this past year, to get deer every single year from almost the same tree every single yeah. year. And there's this one idea of, man, I don't know if he's going to come by, and he always comes by. Um, where out here, I've been hunting the same elk grounds for three years. My first year, I, uh, I put one spot and stalk on an elk. I can smell them, but I never saw them. Last year, I saw maybe 200 elk. I, had, I was at full draw two times. I had a six point in at about 55 yards. I couldn't get a shot on. And that was my elk hunting last year. Yeah. This year, I'm just thinking, I need to go back to that same spot. Let me close this chapter of the story. Let me get an elk out of this unit, out of this location. And then maybe I won't revisit there. Maybe I'll take a friend there who wants to go bow hunting. But I need to close this chapter. And it sounds like persistence is the answer. Yeah. So that windmill, I killed. uh, Well, let me go back a minute. In 82, I killed a doe deer, yep. and she still had milk in her udder. Wow. And I'm like, and that was from the ground, yeah. broadside. I'm never doing this again. Yeah. I just, <laughs> it didn't. Because yeah. you don't know, is that little one old enough to make it? And I was like, I am not going there. So then then I killed the record book. Oh, that pronghorn that I killed, my yeah. first kill. Yeah. That was record book. Really? Pronghorn. The, the, uh, Did I get the, With a bow. With a bow, yeah. Okay. 82. How big, do you remember? 63 and two eights. Wow. 
That's before. That's when the minimum was still fifty-seven. So I had to get him entered that year because the next year they raised to 64, and now they've raised it the minimum to 67. So in in uh, 83, I killed one that scored 60 off that same windmill. And then a few years later, I killed one on a windmill to the west, and then I went back to this same windmill and killed another one. Those were probably, oh, 8-inch bucks, nothing real big. So I got four off, off of windmills. So... We've talked a little bit about tree stands, windmills. I'm curious, do you feel that being elevated is one of your better tactics or your favorite tactics? Do you have a hunting tactic, whether it's for one species or across species, that you really just enjoy doing? Love the tree stands, but you have to learn patience. It took me a while. You know, to go sit on a windmill all day, and you get down, and you're just dead tired. That sun baking on you, you know, when it's 90, 95, all day you know, you got a cooler up there with you and, and water and drinks and so forth, but it still just soaks the energy out of you. And I think the reason why it takes the energy out of you is it's not just patience, but it's uh, a combination of patience with hypervigilance and always be ready. Always be ready. So it's not, okay, first light, last light, I'll have my bow in my hand. For 9, 10, 12 hours a day, you have to be ready to shoot an animal. Yeah, they'll come in in the morning sometimes, but usually it's later in the day for the pronghorn. Yeah. But they can come in midday. Yeah. I uh, last year I was in New York. I um, was. Uh, they give you a lot of tags. You can get four doe tags, two buck tags. Uh, they're they're ready for you to shoot the deer out there. Um, Long Island's a bow only unit, and I found a little parcel a few uh, miles away from where I had been hunting, and this parcel was next to it horse farm it had some water on it and it just felt like a really deery area um the last night of my hunt i'm in the tree and i'm looking at my phone at a picture of the deer i shot the year before and a buck comes walking up the path and i'm not ready and i just told myself i said you flew halfway across the country to go do this and it wasn't to look at your cell phone of the picture of the deer last year it was to be ready to shoot this animal so a lot of these lessons you have to learn the hard way but i hope i never make that mistake again so i got that pronghorn got him entered into the book so i you know then then i joined pope and young and a lot of people think well you got to kill something that makes a book to join pope and young and they've put out information now so people know mm-hmm. i didn't know that back then yeah you don't have to to be in the book to join pope and young gotcha. you know you can uh, join if you take a mature specimen yeah. a doe deer Interesting. so then i got my record book mule deer so I was able to move up from associate to regular membership. And then I missed those two bulls that would have made the book. And at that time, you had to have three different species in the book in order to move up to senior yeah. or wait five years. Well, I had to wait the five years because I didn't get my other one. But I did get to move up to senior membership, which I never, ever thought I'd even be a member of Pope and Young, let alone be senior member. Yeah. So, yeah. I've had tags, but to specifically hunt bear, no, I was going to bring that up. Bears and cats. And I didn't get my bighorn sheep a couple times, the ram or the ewes, come close. Had to pass shots sometimes up the big Thompson because there was 30 people parked on the road watching, and I am not doing that. I'd rather go without than to make a mess of Pope and Young, CBA, and myself. Yeah, you can't even hunt them on the weekends. It's interesting. Yeah, it's... There's so many people yeah, in that country. Yep. Uh, but, so, uh... Do you have a favorite animal to pursue? You sound like a generalist. Uh, uh... You don't have to either, but I'm just curious if there's one that's fond of your heart. I love hunting elk. Yeah? The bugling and... The interaction. Yeah. It is thrilling. And we got a quarter million of them here in Colorado, so it's nice. Uh, last night, I s- stupidly thought that our event was at the Hotel Elegante, so I drove all the way down to Colorado Springs from Denver. Really? Oh, man, I made a silly mistake. Oh, shoot. 160 miles round trip. However, saw a herd of elk on the way, made my whole trip. There you go. Yeah, so that's 
And I did get a Rocky Mountain goat. It's a nanny. Yeah, here in Colorado, I drew for G16. Had quite a few points. It's a a rifle or whatever associated methods area. And we scouted a little bit and seen some billies. And second day, couldn't find the billies. Hadn't seen them. Hadn't seen them opening day. And the goats aren't real spooky up there, but you still have to sneak up on them. So the second day, my bunny and I walked down a ridge about three-quarters of a mile, and I seen this goat coming. Had a smaller one with it, but it was pretty much grown. And somebody had mentioned there was a dwarf billy running around up there, and that's what this one looked like. <laughs> Little rut. But my wife and I had made this goat suit. I had white stretch pants and a white hoodie and a hat with two black horns. Yes. Got a picture of it, too. <laughs> so I told told Randy, I said, well, I made the, we made this suit, and this goat's coming. I said, I don't even think I need the suit, but we made it. I'm putting it on. So there was a little sag here. So I got down in that sag low. Randy bought, backed off. And that goat come up there, and I had kind of a sideways-facing shot, so I didn't get the best hit. And the goat run a long ways, but I, I got the goat. About 16 yards, and I'd spent a bundle on a new bow, thinking I'd have to shoot farther. 16 yards. Do you think the suit helped? Well, it just kind of stopped and looked. I think it did. It was kind of looking to see exactly what it was, and it bailed over the edge, so it had, and it didn't fall. A lot of them fall and break horns and everything, but didn't fall, but run way down in the bottom, so it went 800 yards. So I had to go back, chase it down there, and but I got it. Wow, just, exciting. you know, you want better hits, but I knew that I wanted to get my goat because I'll never get to do this again. And this is a decent opportunity here. So you take the shot and you try to hold the arrow far enough forward to go through the shoulder and into the kill zone. But it went just a little too far. But we got the goat. Had to pack. I went back and got the four-wheeler and went around and met Randy and we packed it out. What an exciting history. I really appreciate you sharing all these. I'm sure you have other stories too. I have a couple of questions and some of these you may have answered already. Um, I'm curious what, if, if anything, you consider like one of your better successes, your greatest successes in your history as a hunter and a bow hunter. As far as taking animals? Whatever you define success as, sometimes it's just learning something, you know. Well, I guess my greatest success, if I had to pick an animal, yeah. would be the first one the and having it make Pope and Young. That's got to feel so uh, satisfying to know that you can not only achieve it, but see that, uh, get that recognition from others as well. You know, it's not always why we do it, but uh, if Instagram didn't exist, I'm wondering how people would share their stories, you know? <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and taking that pronghorn, I took that pronghorn and made Pope and Young, and then I shot that doe mule deer, yeah. and then I passed that cow elk, so I could have had three wow. in one year. And I believe the next year I took a pronghorn and I took a spike mule deer from that same water hole and I didn't get a bull there. Yeah. Come close, but I didn't get him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I could have had three animals in two years. But I'm not, you know, I'm not saying I'm as good as some of these other guys that have taken all these animals. Sure. Uh, it's just my story and my, my thing and, and enjoying the woods and trying to do the right thing. Right. Right. I just want to be one of those guys. Yes. And that's why I got on as an area rep years ago and moved my way up to the different positions that I've held over the years and seen all these other guys. I, I said, I don't want to be better than them or worse than them. I want to be part of them. I'm, and I'm there. I, that's just just the way I feel. I really appreciate that because that's I'm at the beginning of the journey that you that you're on or that you've really seen is that 
I look up to all these guys. I haven't gotten an elk yet. I haven't gotten a mule deer yet. I haven't gotten an animal in Colorado. Um, and so just that idea of I want to be one of the guys is a good goal, right? You don't have to be Remy Warren. You don't have to be John Dudley. You don't have to be these guys who have all the success in the world. But if you want to strive for that, you have to be in the arena. You have to right. Up. You got to be persistent. And I have a lot of other hobbies. Yeah. If I focused just on bow hunting, I'd have a lot more. But I have a lot of other things that I enjoy, so I try to do a little bit of each. And here's some other information. So my hunting partner, we met in kindergarten. And then he moved away. Well, he came back and we worked at the same company for many years together. And we're both retired now. But he's hunted with me for over 30 years. Uh, He did take a pronghorn here a few years ago with his bow. Hasn't killed an elk yet, but he's hunted all those years and hadn't gotten anything. But his three boys started hunting with us. Chisholm, when he was young, J.D. says, Chisholm, you go with Gerald. He'll show you how to do all this. So all the three boys have kind of, I mainly worked with Chisholm, and Chisholm worked with his brothers. So Scott, Chisholm, and Koya, a few years ago, uh, they've they've all, not all in one year, two two of them would take five-point bulls in in one year on the same day in two different spots from camp. So we're packing from both directions. And then I think the next year, another one got a five point. No, Scott got his first and then the other two. And then Chisholm here had his six by seven at the banquet last year. So all these boys have hunted with us and have learned. And now my son-in-law is also archery hunting. I haven't hunted with him yet. He's got some friends he hunts as well. Ellie, my oldest granddaughter, Got her mule deer three-point last year with a bow, the year before she got a buck with a rifle. So her mule deer is hanging here at the banquet now to get her first-timer award. And they'll all be here this evening, the whole family. Both daughters, both son-in-laws, two grandsons, three granddaughters. Just because you took an interest in Yeah. You're fine. Uh, I'm enjoying this. This is wonderful. wonderful. Um, So, uh, the first one is Do you have any hunting situations that were a bit precarious? I like to use the word sketchy, but not everybody knows what I mean by that. Do you have any memories of something, gosh, maybe should have gone after that goat or gone over that ridge line or I didn't bring my sleeping bag or some sort of uh, situation where you just felt like maybe I overstepped my boundaries here? Oh, I can. Tell you one and show you one. Man, so I'm staring at a picture of a giant moose here, and Gerald's no more than 10 yards away. Yeah, that was a little less than 10 yards. The pickup was right behind me. My buddy took the picture. Oh, man. Just staring at him right in his eyes. Yeah. Oh, boy. And I was in that same meadow a few years. I don't know about the same time as this, I guess. And there was a moose, a bull moose, a cow, and a yearling. And they're in rut. And I was by myself, and I... Stopped the truck, got the camera out, went out into the meadow, and the bull's making some funny sounds, you know, because they're in rut. So I'm with my camera, and I start making the same sounds, and I'm thinking, this isn't good. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, okay, I'm going to take some pictures, and I'm out of here. I think I took a couple pictures and left, because if you keep making those sounds, pretty soon he's going to run you off. And they're not scared. No, no. And they move pretty quick. And I move pretty quick, too. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah, I I would say that, you know, I'm not necessarily scared of mountain lions or scared of bears, but moose kind of get me a little bit. You know, I'd love to have the opportunity to hunt one one day. Last year, uh, on the top of Rabbit Deer's Pass, I was at a campground, and uh, the campground was full, so I had to go camp on some national forest. But I walked over to a lake that was adjacent to the campground, and I noticed some droppings on the ground, 
and I noticed some hoof prints, and I just was like, there's people everywhere. How is there an animal nearby? I go down to the lake, I watch beautiful cotton candy sunset, and I walk back up to the trail that I had walked in on, and I thought I saw like an Angus, right, like a beef cattle, and it wasn't. It was a bull moose, big Shiris moose, and it was 20 yards from me. And I just stopped, and I'm watching it, He's watching me, and for maybe 10 or 15 minutes, this was one of the most like, powerful experiences I've had in the wilderness. We just respected each other's space, and I watched him walk 100 yards across the, across the hillside and off into the woods, and, and I was just like, man, that could have gone very differently. However, you get that feeling inside of you, that special feeling, that connection with nature, and not a single other person that came around knew that moose was there, saw him that evening, and they were no more than 50 yards from him. It was, yeah, it's special. I have another moose story. Walked in a uh, mile and a half in behind the camp where we, where we usually camp, but I drove in uh, the back way. And I'm back in there, and I see this cow moose and probably a yearling bull, small bull, and there's an old logging road. You can hardly tell it's a road. It's so grown in. You know, it's not much for limbs, but pine trees the limbs are all up above you can see quite a ways so i'm watching him come and the bull kind of goes out about 40 yards to my left and circles around the cow still coming and i'm wearing some uh, camo that i bought at cabela's that was called backland all-terrain later it was called rockaflage and i don't think you can even find it anymore it's kind of a gray a little bit of green in it but it's blended into this dark bark gray stuff I'm standing there watching this cow come up this road, and she's coming, coming. I got three trees right here, just in case. And she's coming, and I'm being here by myself, and I let her get within less than 10 yards. I mean, she's, and I, I, I just finally grunted at her and waved, and she just kind of looked and then walked out around. And if I wouldn't have said anything, I swear she'd have walked right up to me. And I thought, I don't need this. <laughs> It's just one of those things you got to be cautious. Yeah, and, and that's the thing is your curiosity can get the best of you sometimes, but it's that interface that, the, I don't want to say getting away with it, but just that idea of we had this connection, we respected each other's uh, territory, and we went on living our, our separate lives, right? You went back to your life, and she kept doing moose things. Um, I do have one other question for you. Uh, is there anything before I ask this final question that you wanted to share with us? Yeah, I'd like got a couple other little things here. You know, you know when you, when you're out there in blinds or in tree stands, you see a lot of things other than what you're hunting. Sure. Birds, you know, grouse. Birds come in to drink. Clark's nutcrackers, woodpeckers. I mean, all kinds of stuff. And so I'm up there on that water hole one time where I usually hunt. And I see all these little birds come in. And I look down there, oh, it's a flock of baby nuthatches. And I didn't figure this out till I got home and looked at the bird book. Yeah. There are pygmy nuthatches. Oh, interesting. And I'd never seen any. But I, there had to be 15 of them in this little group. They come in to drink. Yeah. I usually see the white-breasted ones and the red-breasted ones. Yeah. And I figure out these are pygmies. You know, and most people don't see some of that stuff. But I seen that that day. Okay, uh, hunting a pop-up blind out on Pawnee by a windmill, little corral, a lot of weeds around it. Figured a pronghorn had come into the side to, to drink where it was open. Nothing showed up. A lot of times coyotes will come into windmills. They'll smell you, and they leave. So this younger coyote started coming in, and I was watching it. It come in right up to the tank, went between the tank and a post, Right to my right, and I'm using an old double bull blind at that time with the little oval holes. That coyote walked right by that window. I could have reached out and poked it in the back. Never smelled me. Went over and was standing over towards where the pickup was parked. Fairly close. Didn't you know? Didn't run off till I got out. Right, right there. Yes. Not not that much. Kind of I have I have in the past. Yeah. Once once or twice, but. Do you, do you uh, get the pelt uh, tanned or anything like that? Or 
I didn't at that time. Yeah. But, I don't know, with the fleas and all the other potential issues, I'm, I'm always iffy about it. Yeah, it's, it's questionable because you don't, yeah. Um, and we've had, we've had uh, well, Chisholm, the, the guy that got the five point and had the six by seven at the banquet, yeah. he was up there one day and laying uh, by a log waiting for help to come by and looked behind him and a cat was 20 yards sneaking up on him and he kind of oh my, my mountain lion <laughs> yeah and i have yet to really see a cat up there in the woods i know they're there oh yeah i know they're there we had wolves and where we're at those wolves been there for over 100 years yeah the old rancher that lived there told us about that and we had uh the three of us were hunting. We were in a tent that morning and got up and went down the little logging road. And I looked down at the ground, and I'm like, there's nobody up here with a St. Bernard. You know, these tracks are five-inch diameter, six-inch diameter. So we go on and hunt. I don't know if we got, I think we got on some elk that day. Come back to the tent. You know, we just got up, went out of the tent, and down the road. Sure. We come back to the tent, look around the tent. There was tracks all the way around the tent. Wow. Now, when J.D. was over the hill, and that's my hunting partner, yeah. when he was over the hill, he was on some cow, elk, all camoed, head net, and he sees something to his left. This wolf come by at about 20 to 25 yards and stopped, looked at him, growled jd didn't move and he he went on so he seen the wolf yeah. and this is probably 15 18 years ago man wolves scare me more than coyotes do oh boy that's wild and now that there's the her, uh, the, the pack up in i forget where it is uh, north park at walden yeah. yeah now see and we're we're to the west of, or east of there quite a ways yeah and you're seeing wolves where you are yeah They've been there. Yeah. And I told the commissioner, the, yeah, the chairman of the commission, yeah. he was at one of our meetings, and I told him about that before this vote ever happened. Yeah. All the information. And supposedly Wyoming Game and Fish knows about this pack that's up there, because yeah. that pack was seen, I think it'd be four years ago now in the wintertime, at a cabin that some people we know own. Oh, a guy was watching the cabin for him in the wintertime. There was a pack of 14. Yep, so they've been there for years. Man. They're they're not transplants. Wow. They're not crossbreeds. Yeah, they've been there forever. Wow, see that stuff you don't hear. That stuff you don't necessarily you know, get uh, the inside scoop on. I really appreciate you sharing. And there's more bears and more cats, and the wolves now. Yeah. So I'm actually packing a little bit of defense. Yeah, I would carry bear spray, but I I, I start to carry a sidearm as well. Yeah. I upgraded to a one a little bit bigger. It's a little bulky, but I just I want to be safe. I'm not that worried. Yeah. But you know, when you're going with your grandkids, you got an obligation. Yeah, I you know I'm not gonna. I hear you there. I'm gonna protect them. I wish that I would have known more people in the Colorado Bowhunters Association. Interesting. Because when I got started hunting, I started because my uncle hunted with a bow, yeah. but I didn't get to hunt with him. So when I was hunting for those six or seven years before I got anything, I had to pretty much learn everything myself. Yeah. So if I'd have known people that gave me some pointers, I would have been a lot more successful than I have been. I love that. I think it's the reason why I'm here is I'm absorbing so much of what I get from you guys and I, I do a lot of solo hunting however I come in with a, a, a big uh, library of knowledge from these conversations from the publication from the magazine from the website as well as all the other resources out in the world but I really like that and 
for anybody listening, you join the CBA for $30 a year. It's the best deal going. You get six physical magazines a year. You get access to the online publication. You can come to events like this CBA banquet. We have the shoot in August every year. And it's a great group of guys with a wide berth of experience. People who've done the big eight, big nine. Um, I really encourage people to go check out coloradobowhunting.org and join the organization. And they protect and promote bow hunting in Colorado. And, the, and this year really speaks volumes to that. If, if you want to be in an organization that's got your back, the, these are the ones. Gerald, I really appreciate all the work you've done for us. Just being on this earth and being who you are, you're like a, a shining light, and I really appreciate your time with us today. I appreciate the visit.